Hello and welcome to No Character Limit. My name is Robert Thurk, and today you're going to hear episode 16 of my book entitled Ultima Thule, Unraveling the Unknown. In this episode, you're going to hear all of chapter 9 called Antarctic Adventures. In the last episode, I talked about how the Milenkovitch cycles have influenced human evolution and tool development for at least the last million and a half years. In this episode, I push back even further in time and talk about the famous Letty Jaw, one of the most critical archaeological finds that goes back to the beginning of the Quaternary Ice Age and is likely a direct ancestor of humans. But only after I introduce the Letty Jaw do I veer off back into another episode on exploration. Instead of the Arctic, this time I'm focusing on Antarctica. I'm going to get back to how humans evolved in relationship to the climate in the next chapter or the next episode, and I'm even going to go much deeper in time than that. But I wanted to set up how important Antarctica is to our understanding of climate history, and really reinforce how the fact that it's still frozen after 2.7 million years is why we know so much about the climate in this time period that we do. But this episode particularly, is going to mirror a lot more of what I did back in Chapter 5, where I talked about the exploration missions of the Arctic. Just to refresh your memory, some of the expeditions I mentioned were the missing Franklin expedition of the 1830s when they tried to find the Northwest Passage and were never seen again. There was also the miraculous Weiprecht expedition of the 1870s, which ultimately spurred off the international polar and geophysical years. There's the American Greeley expedition, which was during the first international polar year in the 1880s. And Peter Freuchen's mission to Greenland in the early 20th century. And I even make a brief mention of Neville Maskelin, who was the Astronomer Royal from the 18th century Transit of Venus story that I told in that chapter as well. But Antarctica is a special place, and due to the age of its ice, it's also an ancient place because there is no older ice on Earth than on the southern continent. And for centuries, it was predicted to be there, but it was never found until the 19th century. Ultimately, 
there was a race to see who could make it to the South Pole first. And it created such a global interest that it gets a special little niche area in history called the Age of Antarctic Exploration. And I'm going to summarize that pretty well in this episode. Every once in a while, I like to highlight one of my sources because I feel like it is so well done or it shares some unique aspect to a story. In this case, there is a great documentary out there. It's quite a few years old right now, but it's called Shackleton's Captain. And it's about Ernest Shackleton's captain named Frank Worsley during the legendary Endurance Expedition. Some of you may have heard of what happened during that expedition, and some of you might not. But even if you do know the story of Shackleton's Endurance Expedition, it's likely you don't know what a critical role Frank Worsley played because Shackleton often gets a lot of the celebration for what Frank Worsley really did here. So if you get a chance to see that documentary, I recommend it. But for now, let's get into it. Just a reminder, if you are enjoying this podcast and you'd like to donate, you always get a free PDF copy of the book with any size donation that you give. This chapter in particular has a lot of great images from these Antarctic exploration expeditions, as well as beautiful pictures of Antarctica today. If you can't donate or just like to listen, please like, rate, or review, or tell a friend to help increase the amount of people who know about this podcast. You can always follow me at nocharacterlimit at mastodon.world. And you can always reach out to me in an email at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. So with that, I hope you enjoy Chapter 9, Antarctic Adventures. Chapter 9, Antarctic Adventures Part 1, Exploring Antarctica Time and again, the Milankovitch cycles proved to be the cause of major evolutionary changes across all species, especially humans. It's even possible that our entire Homo genus may have evolved into existence due to arid climate changes 2.8 million years ago, before even Homo erectus evolved into existence, and even before the Quaternary Ice Age began. In Ethiopia, 
a 2.8 million year old jawbone that is distinctly homo was discovered along the same stretch of mountains where Alorgaceli would develop well over a million years later. Known as the Letty Jaw, it is the earliest evidence of our collective genus. Homo habilis, Homo rudolfensis, Homo erectus, Homo heidelbergensis, Homo floresiensis, Homo neanderthalensis, Homo naledi, and Homo sapiens would all be descendants of this totally new genus 2.8 million years ago. And all that we have left today to learn about these ancient collective ancestors is a single jawbone. These mysterious hominins descended from an earlier genus known as Australopithecus, which also share a lot of distinctive features of hominins before any hominins existed. A jawbone is not enough to determine the origin of an entire genus, but the climate indicators are there. Climatologists have determined that 2.8 million years ago, many animals seemed to be evolving to adapt to a drier climate. The teeth of grazing animals that thrived seemed to be the ones suited for drier and grassier climates. These were species that were developing right before the start of the current Quaternary Ice Age, which began to form about 2.7 million years ago. While scientists have admitted that there is not enough evidence to definitely connect the climate to the origin of our entire tool-using, fire-dependent, globe-trotting genus, it's been clear that it has impacted us everywhere else along the way. So it also makes it the likely cause for the development of the entire Homo genus. To understand the climate 2.7 million years ago, though, we have to look south, not north. The ice cores pulled from Greenland haven't given us any samples that predate 130,000 years ago, having largely melted as a victim of the Eemian interglacial. As much as Greenland might have felt like a world away back in the early 20th century to the likes of Peter Freuchen and other adventurers, it was Antarctica that was the truly alien landscape found right here on planet Earth. For thousands of years, the hidden continent at the bottom of the world was thought to exist, but was never actually discovered. The Greeks called it Antarcticos, meaning the opposite of the bear, indicating the constellation Ursa Major, which the Big Dipper is a part of, and can only be seen from the northern hemisphere. 
The Greeks believed this mythical continent to exist on the opposite side of the world because so much land existed in the northern hemisphere that they believed that a long-lost continent must exist somewhere at the bottom of the world to balance everything out. It was not until the 18th century that Captain James Cook decided that he was going to find this mythical southern continent. By the time Cook set sail in search of Antarctica in 1772, he had already made international fame by leading the 1769 expedition for the second transit of Venus to Tahiti providing some of the most valuable data of the second observation. In the late 18th century, Antarctica had become a legend, rumored to contain mysterious tropical forests with unusual undiscovered species. Ultimately, Cook spent three years looking for the elusive continent known only as Terra Australis Incognita, or the Unknown Southern Land. Sailing through the vast southern ocean, Cook would have experienced the same mysterious glowing auroras as seen in the northern skies, but known by a different name down here, Aurora Australis, or the Southern Lights. As Cook continued to sail south, he noticed that it was getting colder and helped dispel the myth of any warm, tropical, forested land. Antarctica had its ways to remain hidden, and Captain Cook ran into its most dangerous protector, the ice flows. While saltwater has a lower freezing point than freshwater, it still does freeze. It begins with fine needle-sized shards, or disks, appearing in the water, and as it cools further, a slurry of shards and disks form. Add in some strong sub-zero winds, and they attach to each other and begin to thicken. These winds push the growing conglomeration of ice into the open ocean, and woe to any polar adventurer who gets in their way. Daring to push through the beginnings of an ice flow is almost guaranteeing the loss of a ship. It was the ice flows of the polar north that locked up the Franklin expedition, Carl Weyprecht's ship, and stopped the resupply ships of the Greeley expedition. Captain Cook encountered their southern cousins and immediately understood their dangers, pulling away from them and trying to reach the elusive continent elsewhere. But Ice flows can extend hundreds or thousands of miles out to sea. As Cook navigated these flows, he noticed large chunks of rock mixed in with some of the ice, which could only mean one thing. 
land was out there beyond this impenetrable icy barrier. At the end of his three-year expedition, Cook returned to civilization a failure in finding the lost continent, but he was confident in its existence, stating, quote, I firmly believe there is a tract of land near the pole, which is the source of most of the ice which is spread over this vast southern ocean. End quote. Antarctica was finally discovered on January 27, 1820, by the Russian explorer Fabian von Bellinghausen. But the honor of the first person to set foot on the frozen continent would go to the American sealer John Davis in 1821. When the first international polar year took effect in 1882, it was only the Germans who made the effort to establish a base in Antarctica at the Royal Bay, just south of South America. Eleven men wintered there, taking careful measurements at the same time and in the same way that the American Greeley expedition was doing in the Arctic. They, too, carefully measured the tides, glaciers, weather, and life in this new and largely unexplored tundra. And as the Greeley expedition began to fall apart in the darkness of the northern winter, the Germans in the Antarctic were having temperatures peak to the balmy point of freezing while bathed in the continuous southern summer sunlight. The height of the German expedition came on December 6, 1882 when they observed the transit of Venus passing across the sun. The 1872 and 1882 transits were the next pair of transits that occurred after the famous 1761 and 1769 expeditions that Cook participated in. Using the most technical equipment of the day, these Germans would have huddled around a specialized telescope on the continent of Antarctica while watching a small speck cross the lens, knowing that this speck was another world floating between the sun and the earth. Like the last time Venus transited the sun, these Germans also took careful measurements to add to the century-old data from the likes of Chap and Cook. From Earth's final frontier, the Germans gazed up into the only unexplored ocean left. Having a much more routine international polar year than the Greeley expedition, they collected their instruments and returned home the following year in September of 1883, late in the frigid southern winter, which can reach as low as 135 degrees Fahrenheit below zero. Even late in the 19th century, humans rarely stepped foot on the forbidden continent, and when they did, it was certainly not for long.
So it wasn't until the 20th century that the exploration of Antarctica intensified with a competition to see who could reach the South Pole first, located deep inland on the continent. The subsequent race of exploration has an entire historical subgenre dedicated to it known as the Heroic Age of Antarctic Exploration, complete with a cast of characters that were often larger than life. The Discovery Expedition, named for the lead ship in this race and lasting from 1901 to 1904, was funded by Britain's Royal Society and Royal Geographic Society and would turn out to be one of those serendipitous teams of greats that only rarely come together. So many of the members of the Discovery Expedition would become legends. Ernest Shackleton, Edward Wilson, Frank Wilde, Tom Crean, and William Lashley would all go on to play integral roles during the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. And it all started with the Discovery Expedition. All of these men were under the leadership of a 33-year-old Robert Falcon Scott, who had 18 years in the Navy before being put in charge of the Discovery mission. And with no direct polar experience, he even later admitted that he had no interest in the exploration of the Antarctic. The idea actually came from a geographer who had met and appreciated Scott's character and intelligence, calling him the destined man to command the Antarctic expedition. In this sense, Lieutenant Greeley and Captain Scott were in a similar situation due to both having a lack of experience. But Scott's ability to learn and adapt to the challenges of the polar region far outmatched that of Greeley's. The societies funding the mission were driven by a passion for science and glory, which required a leader who could recognize the value of the work they were sending him to do. Despite Scott's lack of interest in exploring the polar south, Scott understood the value of the mission and was willing to put his life on the line for its success. During the three-year expedition, Scott's crew experienced the usual troubles associated with any polar expedition. Ice flows capturing the ship, health problems, poor rations, unbearable cold, and maddening isolation. Scott led two men on an expedition into the interior of the continent on dog sleds, Edward Wilson, the crew's doctor, and the third lieutenant, Ernest Shackleton. 
Together, the trio would make it farther into the interior than any other group had done before them, while the rest of the crew worked to ensure that they had a supply of food waiting for them at different predetermined locations on their journey home. But this dangerous trek into the Antarctic interior had its costs. Wilson began to suffer from snow blindness, and Shackleton from scurvy, and the group's ignorance on sled dogs led them to underfeeding the dogs, making them too weak to carry the sledge, and forcing the three men to pull their own supplies. Rather than kill the dogs for provisions, the three men allowed them to run along behind them so they could have a chance at survival as well. They cut it close, but they successfully made it back to the Discovery alive. They traveled a total of 960 miles round trip, coming within 500 miles of the South Pole, leaving the trophy of who would reach it first still unwon. Ice-breaking ships were then sent to free the Discovery and her crew, and the men returned home as celebrated heroes. The global appetite was ripe for some more Antarctic adventures. The Discovery Expedition set off a race to see who now could reach the South Pole first. Robert Scott was already in discussions with his funders about returning to cover those final 500 miles of glory to the bottom of the world. But Scott was not the only one interested in reaching the South Pole first. And soon, a competitor came out ready to set sail ahead of him. Scott's first challenger was significant because he had accompanied Scott across the continent during the Discovery Expedition, Ernest Shackleton. Shackleton, only a few years younger than Scott, was ambitious and wanted to leave his own legacy and so was able to put together his own expedition on a ship called Nimrod to reach the South Pole. In order to get ahead of Scott, Shackleton's mission wasn't going to depend on funding from any of the royal societies that funded Scott. He was able to get enough private funding that it was basically his own private mission without any major organizational support. While Shackleton's primary aim was to reach the South Pole first for the glory, he also knew the value of good scientific research being associated with the mission. So he enlisted the support of geologists Douglas Mawson and Edgeworth David, both renowned in their own rights. Mawson and David would climb one of the two active volcanoes on the continent, Mount Erebus, and go on to be the first people to reach the magnetic South Pole 
while taking other critical scientific data that would earn them fame. Shackleton, now 33 himself, knew that trying to be the first person to reach the South Pole would mean taking risks. And this began by breaking an agreement he made with Robert Scott. Shackleton had agreed that he would not land at McMurdo Sound, the location of the Discovery landing, because he knew that Scott wanted to use the location again for his own mission to reach the South Pole. But rather than taking the unnecessary risk of landing somewhere unknown, Shackleton decided to push on to McMurdo Sound anyway willing to risk his relationship with Scott for the glory of being the first to reach the South Pole. Shackleton pushed his ship, the Nimrod, through the pack ice to reach the continent, and over the course of the Antarctic summer, he sailed further south than Scott was able to get the Discovery. Learning from the Discovery mission, Shackleton chose to use Siberian ponies, rather than sled dogs, to trek into the interior, and he easily bested his previous effort with Scott by getting 400 miles closer to the South Pole than the Discovery Expedition. But despite reaching within 100 miles of the South Pole, Shackleton knew his life was at stake, and that he had to turn around in order to save himself. Choosing his life over glory, Shackleton wrote to his wife, quote, I thought, dear, that you'd rather have a live ass than a dead lion, end quote. He had to kill the Siberian ponies and eat them in order to survive, but Shackleton was able to return with his life from the frozen wastes of Antarctica for a second time. Shackleton's Nimrod expedition was largely considered a success, despite not having reached the South Pole and it earned him a knighthood and another expedition to the Forbidden Continent. But Shackleton would not get there before Robert Scott had his chance to take another shot at reaching the Pole himself. Shackleton would have to wait and see if his former captain would beat him to the bottom of the world. The scientific information that was brought back by Mawson and David would ultimately be what truly made the Nimrod expedition a success. While Shackleton was primarily driven by his ambition, he understood the true value of Antarctica lay in the scientific discoveries on the continent and used what he learned from the Discovery Expedition as his model for data collection. His work was recognized as valuable by the societies that funded the Discovery mission, and for a few brief years, he was the most famous man of the heroic age of Antarctic exploration, having been the closest to the South Pole. 
All of this focus on the South Pole, brought on by Robert Scott and Ernest Shackleton, caught the attention of another polar explorer, Roald Amundsen. By 1910, the Norwegian explorer had already gained international fame for being the captain of the first crew to traverse the mythical Northwest Passage, which was the original intention of the doomed Franklin expedition 65 years earlier. While Franklin had been given a pair of the best ships the British fleet had to offer and were never seen again, Amundsen crossed the Northwest Passage on a 70-foot fishing boat in 1903, taking about three years to complete the journey. He also encountered pack ice in the Arctic, just as the Franklin and Waypract missions had, but with a heavy dose of luck, fate allowed his ship to become dislodged and he was able to complete the mission successfully with his life intact. Amundsen's next trip was to be even more ludicrous than traversing the Northwest Passage. He had publicly announced that he was going to be the first person to reach the North Pole by drifting in a boat through it. Knowing full well he'd be locked up in the ice, that may never thaw again. But then claims started to come in from at least two other explorers that they had already reached the North Pole in 1909, which meant there was only one pole left that had not yet been claimed, and Everyone knew Robert Scott was already well on his way with preparations to reach it following Shackleton's Nimrod failure. If Amundsen wanted to beat Scott to the pole, he was going to have to be faster and sneakier. For Amundsen to pull off reaching the South Pole before Scott, he loaded his ship with some of the best sled dogs that he could find and took his ship to Morocco, having told everyone from his benefactors to his own crew that the mission was still to reach the North Pole. But after the ship resupplied in Morocco and pushed off into the Atlantic, he suddenly turned the ship south, where he announced a different polar goal. Up until that moment, only his brother knew of his secret plan to go south. At the same time, Robert Scott was also in the midst of returning to Antarctica, and by December of 1910, was pushing his new ship, the Terra Nova, through pack ice to reach the difficult continent. The Terra Nova had already survived a storm so powerful that it washed a sled dog off of a ship into the ocean, which then immediately pushed the dog back on board again. Although Amundsen had arrived in the Antarctic region slightly after Scott, 
the weather proved to be in Amundsen's favor, as the waters provided the Fram with clear sailing. To further make up for precious time, Amundsen chose to land his ship in a location that brought him about 60 miles closer to the South Pole than Scott's crew. Amundsen was not an amateur. He not only had experience by traversing the Arctic, he also joined a Belgian mission at the end of the 19th century to explore Antarctica as well. So this was not entirely new territory for him. Amundsen was gaining a reputation as the last of the Vikings for being a Norwegian with vast exploratory achievements. All of these men lived during the dusk of the Age of Exploration, where the world was finally coming together wholly and completely for the first time under the watchful eye of humanity. For a Amundsen, it was time to show the world his true intention, and he sent Scott a simple but clear message warning him that he had new competition. Quote, Beg leave to inform you, Fram, proceeding Antarctic, Amundsen. End quote. For the remainder of the Antarctic summer and the whole of the following dark, terrible winter, Amundsen laid supplies for his crew across the continent in preparation for the big trip to not only beat Shackleton's record, but to beat Scott preparing on the other side of the Ross Sea. Using his carefully chosen sled dogs, Amundsen pushed forth in September of 1911, but was forced back due to temperatures as low as 68 degrees Fahrenheit below zero. The Antarctic winters were so cold that a member of Scott's crew that was out collecting penguin eggs shattered his teeth when they chattered together. Undeterred, Amundsen then tried again on October 20th, 1911, while Scott left his own camp nearly two weeks later on November 1st, using a series of tractors, Manchurian ponies, and sled dogs. Amundsen was able to move faster, relying only on his skis and sled dogs, but he took a greater risk by leaving earlier and taking an untested route filled with the dangers of crevasses, glaciers, and mountains. As he narrowed in on the South Pole, Amundsen later relayed his feelings, quote, I had the same feeling that I can remember as a little boy on the night before Christmas Eve, an intense expectation of what was going to happen, end quote. And on December 14, 1911, Roald Amundsen reached the South Pole, winning the race against Robert Scott, even as Scott was still fast approaching. Amundsen planted the Norwegian flag 
smoked cigars in celebration, and took some basic meteorological data before turning around and returning to camp by January with almost no issue, save the loss of a few sled dogs for meat. For a month's end to have conquered not only the legendary Northwest Passage, but also the unattainable South Pole, somehow returning alive from both, proved there was no small amount of luck on his side. Robert Scott would not be so lucky. It was January 17, 1912, when Robert Scott and the four-man crew that he brought reached the pole, only to discover the remnants left by Amundsen's expedition over a month earlier. Scott recorded, quote, Great God, this is an awful place and terrible enough for us to have labored to it without the reward of priority. End quote. But the British crew's trouble was only just beginning, and losing the race to Amundsen would be the least of their concerns. Scott lost the South Pole to Amundsen not merely because he was slow, but also because he did not view his new expedition as a race, whereas for Amundsen, the race was the only thing that mattered. Just as with his previous Discovery expedition, the Terra Nova mission was done in the name of science where he had the responsibility to collect an abundance of meaningful data during his trip that Amundsen had no obligation nor interest in doing. The bits of meteorological data that Amundsen took during his short stay at the pole was all that he had collected in the name of science, a far cry from what Scott or Shackleton had already done on previous missions. For Amundsen, it was all about the glory, but for Scott and Shackleton, it was also about the advancement of human knowledge. Stuck out in the wastelands of the polar south in late summer, Scott refused to give up on the mission, despite losing to Amundsen. The team continued to collect even more scientific data while the plummeting temperatures of the Antarctic autumn crept dangerously closer. Scott's Terra Nova expedition shared an eerie familiarity to the Denmark expedition, Peter Freuchen's first, and only a half-decade earlier. Just as the leaders of the Denmark expedition mapped and collected data in the unknown reaches of Greenland late into the summer, so too did Scott and his crew while in Antarctica, knowing full well the outcome of the fated Greenland expedition. And exactly one month after they had reached the South Pole on February 17, 1912, the 
first member of Scott's team died. And exactly one month after that, on March 17th, with the autumnal equinox approaching and the sun low on the horizon, a second member walked out into a frigid blizzard and perished. The temperatures had become unbearable, and the weather had turned so bad that by March 19th, Scott and the other two remaining members of his team made camp somewhere in the vast reaches of Antarctica. Here, the three remaining members, Robert Scott, Henry Bowers, and Scott's old friend from the Discovery Mission, Dr. Edward Wilson, would all together freeze to death, only 11 miles from the next supply depot. Their camp, along with their frozen bodies, would be found eight months later, with a treasure trove of carefully collected and preserved scientific data. But the value of what Scott had collected had not yet been understood. Roald Amundsen being the first to reach the South Pole didn't immediately end the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. In December of 1914, Ernest Shackleton was the head of a new Antarctic expedition in an attempt to still yet outdo Amundsen. But what was left to allow Shackleton to stand out? Amundsen had reached the South Pole, and Shackleton had not. Twice. This didn't hold back Shackleton, though. His plan was even more grand. Shackleton was going to be the first person to cross the entire continent of Antarctica. Shackleton felt the pressure of needing to up the ante of his mission to remain relevant and exciting. And so he headed out on his new ship called Endurance. The Endurance made one final stop before heading to Antarctica at a whaling station on the remote island of South Georgia, off of the southeastern coast of South America. The whalers stationed on South Georgia warned Shackleton that the pack ice was thick and that they would never make it to the continent. But turning around was not an option for Shackleton. He had invested too much financial and personal capital to turn back around towards irrelevancy, and he ordered his captain to push ahead. Two days later, and hundreds of miles away from any hospitable land, Shackleton's captain, Frank Worsley, realized that the whalers were right. They were still hundreds of miles from the coast of Antarctica in the Weddell Sea, and the telltale shards of the pack ice began to surround their boat. Worsley knew that they weren't going to make it, and pleaded with Shackleton to reverse course. But Shackleton 
had no intention of turning around so early in his trip. Shackleton knew that Robert Scott had encountered pack ice during his Terra Nova expedition, and that Amundsen encountered it when he traversed through the Northwest Passage. Shackleton knew that pack ice was part of the risk that an explorer took when surveying the polar regions. But Worsley had more sea knowledge than Shackleton, and he knew that this pack ice was too much and too far from the Antarctic coast to ever allow them to make it there. Shackleton was very capable of understanding how much expertise the members in his crew had, but at the same time, he deftly measured when to pull rank on them to get his way. When Shackleton hired Worsley, he knew that he had a captain that not only understood the sea intimately, but also understood how to follow directions when told. And so they continued to push on south despite the captain's better judgment. As the ice grew thicker, the endurance pushed ahead, burning more fuel and covering less sea, until finally, one day, it stopped. They were trapped in an ice floe in the middle of the Weddell Sea which is over one and a half times the size of Alaska, and they were even further from any land that had any sort of help available. They had to accept that they were not going to be rescued and were on their own. Their ship now locked in the ice, they realized that they had to buy time just as Carl Weyprecht's disaster mission had to while frozen in the Arctic Circle, and Shackleton set the crew to a life of structured routine, waiting for the endurance to be freed. For the remainder of the southern summer and the entirety of winter, the ship remained stuck in the ice, floating aimlessly. Then, in October 1915, disaster struck and the ice tore apart the ship. Now, even if the ice melted, the ship was unusable. The men took anything important from the ship, including the lifeboats, and set up camp on the pack ice. The dream of crossing the Antarctic continent was gone, and now only a rescue mission lay ahead of them. Shackleton tried to pull the lifeboats and the necessary supplies north back to open water, but Worsley realized they were not making any meaningful headway as the flow they were stuck on worked against any progress that they made. Their progress was barely a mile per day, and the ice continued to spin against their northwesterly direction. Like attempting to walk forward on a merry-go-round, the crew of the Endurance put in a lot of work 
to barely get anywhere at all. It was a futile attempt, and Shackleton eventually gave in to Worsley and allowed them to continue to camp on the ice floe without movement. As spring turned to summer and summer turned to autumn, the pack ice continued to melt, turning their campsite into wet pools, never allowing anyone or anything to fully remain dry and torturing the crew members. Then, in April of 1916, the ice cracked beneath them, and it was finally time to move again. The men loaded onto the lifeboats and pushed off into the ocean, with Worsley guiding them northwest to a small chain of islands that snake up between Antarctica and South America, known as the South Shetland Islands. Their situation was desperate, and the autumn storms pummeled the crew with icy water as they rowed for their life in the open ocean. Once again, Shackleton looked towards Worsley to guide them to safety. Worsley was not just any sailor. He had a deep appreciation for the sea and was able to maintain his orientation in a way that far surpassed the skills of anyone else on the crew, and likely even anyone else alive. When the men first became trapped in the ice the previous year and had to winter on the pack ice, Shackleton and the crew looked to Worsley for answers on where they were. He was the only man in the group who could accurately identify their position. But as the men looked to Worsley, Worsley looked to the clear night sky. Over a century and a half had passed since Maskelin had sailed to St. Helena, using complicated mathematics to determine his longitude during the 1761 transit of Venus. But similar, precise tools that were used by Maskelin were still used by Worsley, specifically the sextant. The amount of stars that you can see at night away from any sort of light pollution are limitless. But Worsley looked for four very specific stars through his sextant. The first was Regal, which makes up one of the feet in the constellation of Orion, and is the seventh brightest star in the night sky. Regal is actually made up of at least four stars that all orbit each other at a distance of about 1,000 light-years away from Earth. Along with Regal, Worsley looked for the constellation known as the Southern Triangle to the orange star of Atria. Atria is the brightest corner of the Southern Triangle and is about 400 light-years away from Earth, but is still much dimmer than Regal, 
coming in as the 42nd brightest star in the sky. Worsley would stand in the frigid cold with the sextant against his eye and watch these stars move slowly across the sky. The average person doesn't have the patience to stand there, staring at one star almost imperceptibly moving through the sky. But Worsley would stand for as long as it would take to get a proper measurement of their movement. Once confident of the path of Regal and Atria, Worsley would then be able to precisely determine their latitude. Then he did the same with the stars of Akernar and Suhail to determine their longitude. Worsley then went to his map and plotted the course of how far the ice had drifted them that day. It must have eventually convinced the driven Shackleton that pulling the boats toward the water was futile as the ice flowed in the opposite direction of their travel. The stars provided the insight that no man could have given them alone. But as the men found themselves in the life raft in the open ocean, Worsley's tracking of their position became more critical just as it became more difficult than ever. The sextant could also be used on the sun to help determine their position as well. For the sextant to truly identify a location, it also needed something to keep the time, just as they did in the days of Masculine when they chased Venus. Shackleton's crew helped keep the time, but only Worsley had the responsibility of finding the sun's altitude in the sky every five minutes for one to two hours each day with the sextant. Getting a precise altitude on an icy ocean in constant motion must have been unbelievably difficult as well as severely uncomfortable. When each of these five-minute sextant-determined altitudes of the sun are compared with the local time, then that would provide the precise location of the lifeboat for the crew. The skill that this would have taken is beyond the ability of the vast majority of humanity, even in the 20th century. But Frank Worsley deeply understood it. He understood that the slight discrepancies between the timepiece's determination of noon and the high noon of the sun revealed the secrets of where exactly on the planet he was. But these were not clear blue skies and calm waters most days. This was the tumultuous late autumn storms of the southern ocean. Overcast skies caused Worsley to lose his ability to determine their position for many days at a time while the crew's health and strength weakened daily. 
Worsley knew that the survival of the crew depended entirely on his ability to read the sun. But the sextant alone was not enough. As soon as there is no sun to measure, anyone could instantly become lost and turned around by the capricious winds above and the swirling currents below. Out in the middle of the ocean, with a deep overcast sky pouring icy water, could confuse even the most skilled navigators into losing total direction. But Worsley was able to somehow keep track of his direction, in spite of no logical explanation for him to do so. Worsley had the astonishing skill that is known in nautical circles as dead reckoning. Definitions of dead reckoning can sometimes wander into highly complex scientific discussions, but the essence of it is the ability to know the distance traveled and the direction of travel relative to a known start location. In other words, Dead reckoning is basically a fancy way of saying a sailor's intuition. Dead reckoning is significantly easier when able to use landmarks or calm waters, but Frank Worsley used dead reckoning in the middle of a turbulent ocean with absolutely no reference points. In his head, he was able to somehow calculate the rowing speed within the ocean currents, as well as the wind speed and how all of these affected the boat's direction in relationship to some identical piece of ocean that they had traveled the previous day. Worsley used the sextant, the sun, and his dead reckoning skills to try and bring them to the South Shetland Elephant Island. The island he was aiming for was roughly 200 square miles wide, and if his dead reckoning was off, he would miss the island completely. When they finally spotted Elephant Island in the distance, a massive storm blew in and nearly killed them, and had they not seen the island already, they would have likely given up and died. When they reached the island the following day, they had finally stepped on solid ground for the first time in a year and a half. And while there was plenty of penguins and seals to live on, the island was otherwise a desolate, mountainous, frigid wasteland with no plant life. All the while, the rest of the world considered the missing crew of the Endurance dead, and if they stayed too long on Elephant Island, Shackleton knew that this might end up becoming their actual fate. Shackleton made the call to pull apart the three remaining lifeboats and create one larger and stronger boat, which they named the James Card. 
Shackleton took a small crew of five men, where Worsley was once again the captain, having remained the most important man in the crew. The rest of the men would eke out an existence on the forlorn Elephant Isle, knowing the only real chance for their rescue was if the James Card could safely reach their destination. A long shot, at best. In August of 1917, the James Card pushed off to reach the island of South Georgia, the whaling station where their journey began that warned them about the ice to begin with. But South Georgia was nearly 800 miles due northeast, even farther than they had traveled to get to Elephant Island from the Endurance. The ragtag rescue team of the James Card suffered for days while at sea and were constantly wet from the frigid rain and waves. Once again, Worsley used the sextant and dead reckoning to hit a destination the size of a pin. Once again, Worsley safely guided Shackleton and his men correctly, because after two weeks of suffering, the glorious mountains of South Georgia were in their sights. And once again, they had endured hurricane-like conditions just before landfall. But when they at last finally landed, they realized that they were on the wrong side of the island. But at least they had made it. So they rested up on the western shore for a few days, and the strongest of the crew hiked over the interior mountains of South Georgia. They poked screws in their boots for traction, and they crossed 32 miles of completely unexplored mountainous terrain in three days without sleep. They knew that if they slept, they would not wake back up. The men at the whaling station had no good reason to expect any visitors, let alone appearing from across the mountains on the backside of the island. So allegedly, when the crew showed up at the whaling station, the manager asked them, Who the hell are you? And a bedraggled man in the center of the group quietly answered, My name is Shackleton. They had made it back to civilization. It took almost five months for Shackleton to finally rescue the men left behind on Elephant Island. Ice blocked their path on two earlier attempts, but finally he was able to reach the island and found that all 22 members had survived. The expedition had not lost a single man. The public was enraptured with Shackleton's rescue mission, just as they had been with Wyprex over 40 years earlier, where he brought his own crew back from the dead in the Arctic Circle. 
Successful failures like Shackleton's and Yprex often leaves the science that were integral to the missions overshadowed by the story of the survival of the human spirit. When humans were able to travel to space several decades later, the Apollo 13 mission captained by Jim Lovell was another famous example of a successful failure. The fact that no rocks or other scientific data were collected from the moon should have made it one of the most useless missions of the otherwise successful scientific program. But instead, it competes for being the most popular Apollo mission. Human ingenuity overcoming nature is where our deepest spirit lies, and nowhere is nature in its most raw and cruel form than in outer space. But the closest thing to space on Earth are the polar regions. And at the time of Waypract and Shackleton, that was as close as they could get. Ernest Shackleton would attempt one more trip to Antarctica, but would die en route of a heart attack, where he was buried on the island of South Georgia, the island where both his endurance expedition began and ended. The death of Ernest Shackleton shared many similarities with Peter Freuchens many decades later. Both were returning to polar regions just as their hearts gave out on them. And while the Antarctic claimed Robert Scott, it would be the Arctic that would take Roll the Munson, who would die in a plane crash during a rescue mission searching for an airship somewhere north of Svalbard Island. Freuchen, Shackleton, Scott, and Amundsen were drawn to the polar regions, which ultimately claimed each of them. The heroic age of Antarctic exploration was the final terrestrial frontier on Earth, and each of the key players left a legacy with them that caused us to reflect on our values. At first, Ernest Shackleton might have been the most forgettable of the heroic explorers, twice failing to reach the South Pole and failing to cross the continent because he ruined his ship before he could even get it there. And while he did lead missions that helped collect critical scientific information, he was not primarily remembered for this either. He became famous because he helped save his crew from the wreckage of a boat that his own poor decision-making put them in danger of losing in the first place. But because they had all survived to the man, his follies were forgiven, and he gained notoriety similar to Wypract in status. As for Amundsen, his harrowing adventures from the Northwest Passage to being the first to reach the South Pole came with a stain of its own. 
in late 1912, the Royal Geographic Society invited Amundsen to London for a ceremony to honor his achievement for being the first to reach the South Pole, even though they had been the organization primarily responsible for funding Robert Scott's Terra Nova mission. The head of the society, Lord Curzon, said in his closing remarks, quote, I almost wish that in our tribute of admiration we could include those wonderful, good-tempered, fascinating dogs, the true friends of man without whom Captain Amundsen would never have got to the pole. I therefore propose three cheers for the dogs, end quote. Rold Amundsen would always remember this as an underhanded slight by the Royal Geographic Society. Even in his success, Amundsen did not feel properly recognized for his achievement, but this was only because his venture had no greater purpose other than to just be the first. But as the decades passed, the post-World War II culture of the mid-20th century would change the public perception of Amundsen. Amundsen became increasingly seen as an intrepid underdog who faced incalculable odds and succeeded each time, his pinnacle achievement resulting in being the first person to reach the South Pole. So while Shackleton was more celebrated at the time, it was Amundsen who would gain popularity in the post-war world, overshadowing Shackleton almost to the point of obscurity. But it was Robert Scott that would move humanity forward in a more meaningful way than either Amundsen or Shackleton. Robert Scott's mission had far greater purpose compared to Amundsen's last-ditch secret effort to claim further fame. While Shackleton collected scientific data on his expeditions, it was the work of Robert Scott's team that yielded some of the most important results. Scott's team collected data from all over the Antarctic region. They studied the biology and development of penguin eggs and other Antarctic life that were virtually unknown to the world at the time, and they even recorded the coldest temperatures on the planet to date. But the true contrast between Scott and Amundsen could mostly be understood by what happened as Robert Scott and his ill-fated team were returning back to camp from the South Pole, over a month after losing to Amundsen. Despite bad weather and illness, they stopped by a bunch of rocks that had been deposited by a glacier at the base of a mountain and collected some fossils there. After Scott and his men had perished, when their bodies were found eight months later stiff and frozen in the snow, all of the scientific data that they collected was returned to civilization 
including one specific fossil that would shatter the worlds of evolutionary biology and plate tectonics. There, far from where any meaningful flora should be found, amidst the cold, desolate rocks, Scott and his men found the fossil with the imprints of leaves that looked much like a beech tree. Known as the Glossopteris, it had already been found on several other continents, which included Australia, Africa, and South America. But there was a reason why it was Scott's Glossopteris fossil that sent a shockwave through evolutionary science. In the early 20th century, there was still a lot of skepticism on Darwin's theory of evolution, and the Glossopteris tree was at the center of the debate. One theory put forth to support Darwin's was that the Glossopteris once flourished on a continent that once connected Australia, Africa, and South America, but no evidence had yet been produced to prove this. In the final days of his life, and at the expense of his life, Scott collected a fossil of the 250-million-year-old Glossopteris and brought it back with him as far north as he could take it before dying, never knowing fully the meaning behind his discovery. This specific fossil was used in conjunction with other fossils to help prove the theory of continental drift and strengthen Darwinism. This information may not have been found for decades had Scott not sacrificed his life to collect it, and quite possibly may never have been found at all if everyone's values matched those of Amundsen's. Scott collected the evidence to prove that there was a deep history to the earth that no one truly understood yet at the time. The history of the earth was so old that entire continents moved over the course of millions of years enough to form and crumble over time. Science of all kinds has advanced because of men like Scott and Shackleton and the scientific organizations that they worked with. Science had been embedded in exploration due to the efforts of those who studied the transit of Venus and the efforts of Carl Weyprecht and other polar explorers. But not so with Amundsen. When the topic of scientific study was brought up regarding his own expedition, Amundsen made clear that his interest was for glory first, stating that, quote, science would have to look after itself, end quote. Amundsen had detached himself from the greater good that Carl Weiprecht and other polar explorers worked so hard to cultivate in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. 
along with what the societies of Europe had worked to create since the mid-18th century. Even though Amundsen may have been the first, it will always be Scott and Shackleton that had contributed more to the advancement of human understanding during the heroic age of Antarctic exploration than anything Amundsen did for glory and fame. Chapter 9, Part 2, The Antarctic Treaty and the Perseverance of Science. Scott's Glossopterous discovery was just one of many secrets that Antarctica held. The heroic age of Antarctic exploration paved the way for further scientific exploration, but after Shackleton's endurance expedition, the general public began to lose interest in the bottom of the world. Like the Cold War space race between the United States and the Soviet Union once the moon was reached, the competition seemed to peter out. Interest in the continent was not lost instantly when Amundsen reached the South Pole, just as interest wasn't lost instantly as soon as Neil Armstrong landed on the moon. But unmistakably, interest began to fade. The collection of scientific data trickled in slowly during the decades following the race to the South Pole. The 20th century moved on into a Great Depression and the Second World War when the novelty of the distant continent wore off. Antarctica continued to remain a largely untraversed, alien landscape. One Antarctic researcher of the 21st century, Dan Morgan of Vanderbilt University, has said, quote, Antarctica's landscapes are unlike anywhere else on Earth. The best comparison may be the moon, end quote. In the documentary Antarctica, A Year on Ice, the filmmaker brings his camera to a valley that he says is the closest thing on Earth to being on Mars. Even today, there are places of Antarctica where human beings have never set foot, something virtually impossible to say about nearly any other continent. The polar regions of Earth truly are as close to space as most people will ever come. Antarctica was so inaccessible, even after the heroic age, that for the second international polar year in the 1930s, there was no Antarctic research station at all making the one the Germans had in the 1870s for the first international polar year all the more impressive. But by the time of the 1957 International Geophysical Year, 
exploration of Antarctica and space were the two main priorities of the global exercise in scientific collaboration. The geomagnetism of the Earth, the auroras, and cosmic radiation made Antarctica perfect grounds for research, especially since about half of the continent had yet to be explored. Compared to the sole German station of the first international polar year and the zero of the second, the 1957 International Geophysical Year boasted over 50 overwintering stations from 12 countries located all across the polar south. The 1957 International Geophysical Year spawned the beginning of regular flights to the continent, heavy equipment being brought in, and the first inland Antarctic research stations. Space and Earth's crust, glaciers and gravity, atmosphere and ocean, animals and rocks were simultaneously descended upon for close inspection by some of Earth's most renowned scientists across the globe. The discoveries brought forth from the Antarctic research stations had revolutionized and modernized our understanding of the Earth, its atmosphere and oceans, as well as outer space and the physics of the universe. The International Geophysical Year was not just a scientific success, but the effort on the continent also left a powerful political impact as well. Even though the event took place during the heart of the Cold War, there was collaboration between all nations on a scale that few agreements have achieved since, despite the secrets involving rocket science or secret nuclear-powered bases beneath Greenland's ice sheet. The 1957 International Geophysical Year got all of the major countries of the world to agree to a moratorium on territorial claims of the Antarctic continent, which were greatly disputed up until that time. Rather than the Wild West, it was the Wild South where any nation could make a claim on any territory with no precedents set to challenge it. The claims looked a lot like claims made by the early United States when frontier states claimed vast tracts of land west without having any official capacities in those regions. States like Virginia claimed to control land that spanned all the way to the Pacific Ocean. Territorial disputes in Antarctica between countries like the United Kingdom, Argentina, and Chile overlapped all across the continent before the International Geophysical Year moratorium. After the International Geophysical Year, the member nations had a short window to come together and work out some order to the chaotic territorial claims of Antarctica. 
led by the Eisenhower administration of the United States, the 12 member nations that participated in the Antarctic research of the International Geophysical Year agreed on a treaty for international use of the continent by all of the nations that even the Soviet Union agreed to. The most amazing part of the Antarctic Treaty was that all member nations agreed to reserve the entire continent for peaceful and scientific purposes, virtually unheard of in international politics, and the true embodiment of Wyprex's vision. Instead of putting business and territorial claims at the forefront of the treaty, it was science for the good of all humanity that went to the forefront. Each nation could create research stations, such as the thoughtfully named Amundsen-Scott Station for the United States, or the Vostok Station for the Soviet Union. But top-secret military experiments would not be allowed at these research stations. To ensure this wasn't just the honor system, each nation was allowed to inspect other nations' research bases so that top-secret programs like Project Iceworm would be less likely to happen. Military bases and projects are strictly prohibited, as well as nuclear test sites and nuclear waste. And in the same spirit of human advancement as the international polar years, all of the research results done on the continent were to be freely shared between nations. Since the creation of the Antarctic Treaty, the number of member nations who have joined rose from the original 12 to a current total of 52 nations. All of the nations involved have further strengthened it to better help solve disputes, promote scientific cooperation, and protect the Antarctic environment. Thanks to the Antarctic Treaty, it has remained a continent of research into the current age. Ice caves carved out by the magma beneath the volcano of Mount Erebus first climbed by geologist Douglas Mawson on one of Shackleton's missions, may hold new, undiscovered life. Not far from the Russian research station Vostok, a 35-million-year-old lake was discovered deep under the ice that has been trapped from the surface for millions of years, making it the oldest and most undisturbed lake in the world. Other fossils have been found since Scott's Glossopteris as well. In the rocks of the largely dead continent, there is evidence that there once existed giant penguins the size of humans that could weigh up to 265 pounds. Other fossils have pointed to forests that used to grow all across the continent millions of years before it settled into its current position at the very bottom of the world.
evidence of a warm and wet continent that slowly died out to become a frozen wasteland as a result of plate tectonics moving it to an increasingly inhospitable part of the world. Remains found in rocks all over the world are solid evidence of how dynamic the planet is. In the Sahara, it was Heinrich Barth who saw that the Sahara Desert was once a lush water world that supported all kinds of life. And in Antarctica, it was Robert Scott who first found signs of its once diverse flora and fauna. They demonstrated that for millions of species, their home that was once so full of life can disintegrate into little more than rock and sand. And it is a stark reminder that wherever we live today was not always so full of the life that we see around us, and that one day again in some unknown distant future, the entire world will look like how Antarctica and the Sahara look today. Just as the earth began without any life on it, once again, life will eventually disappear and leave nothing but ghostly broken memories in the rocks just as they already have been for billions of years. listening to this episode of No Character Limit. Every episode, the sources that I used are located in the description if you would like to check them out. In addition, please consider liking, rating, and reviewing if you enjoyed this podcast as each one goes to help further the reach of this podcast for new people to hear. Each episode requires hours in research, writing, recording, and editing. So if you feel that what you just heard is worth a donation of any size, please go to the description and follow the links for that. Each donation comes with a free PDF copy of a writing piece of your choice, no matter the size of your donation, and you get a lot of extra features with that, including a lot of the artwork and graphs and pictures, as well as the descriptions that I don't include in the podcast. If you would like updates for new episodes, you can follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world. And finally, if you have a question, comment, or even a correction, 
please feel free to reach out at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. Thank you again for listening.